everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast of a bunch of writers sitting around, drinking tasty beverages, and talking about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Your host writers today are Chaz and Karen Brenchley, and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 127, interview with Aliette de Baudard. Welcome, Aliette. Um, thank you for having me here. I'm delighted to be here. Oh, we are so glad. And for those of you listening who are not fortunate enough to have read her stuff yet, Aliette de Bedard is an award-winning writer of fantasy and science fiction, and occasionally a little bit of horror. Which is your favorite of those three? Um, actually, and I'm going to cheat and say science fantasy. I've got a really <laughs> soft spot for like using the trappings of science fiction, but more with a the the plot approaches and the mythical quality of fantasy. Oh, how do you see them as different, in in especially in terms of plot approaching? I think to me, it feels like science fiction stories are fundamentally have the science as a component, right? Right. Um, so it can, be, it can be a story about like the impact of the science on the social relations. For instance, it can be a story about doing science, making science. It can be like, you know, a kind of world building tour of we're going to show you all these places. But like science is like this to me. Right. And this is a very personal perception. Right. Uh, there's this kind of um, integrality of the scientific approach somewhere in the background of the story whereas with a fantasy story to me it feels a lot more about i mean the ones that speak to me are about you know myths and the power of stories and who gets to tell the stories and a bunch of things that you can put into science fiction right but i i they feel less integral to the genre than the to me the, the the rather specific and niche genre of fantasy that I'm interested in. <laughs> it makes sense. And you have you are an award-winning author. We can say you've won Nebulas, Hugo nominations, an Ignite Award, Locus, European Science Fiction, and Fantasy. So you 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 pretty much seem to have a good handle on all of them. Do you feel you have been a citizen of the world? You've lived in multiple countries. English is your second language and kudos for how well you write it. How has these different world influences affected your writing with the different countries and the different backgrounds? Uh, this is a really tricky question where you kind of ask a fish to describe the water, right? Because I don't really... Well, absolutely, know you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, obviously it's fair. But just like with the caveat that I'm probably the worst person to actually answer this question, uh, my feeling is that, well, with, so I'm, I'm of mixed descent, right? I'm, um, my mother is Vietnamese and my father is French and also of mixed languages, which is I grew up mostly in French, but English was very important. And I finished my, my studies in an English speaking country, right? So, well, finished my studies. Anyway, I lived in an English speaking country at some point. So, I think I'm always very aware of like how different cultures have different ways of doing things. And that, you know, that goes from like very, the things that everybody notices, like the food, right? And the thing that people notice a bit less, like I think we were talking about, we were talking with a friend actually about the fact that um, in, in France, at least, right, um, people value eye contact 
uh, and it's not the only country where they do, but actually there's research that says that 98% of children who are within three generations of an Asian ancestor do not make eye contact because it's not respectful to make eye contact. It's aggressive. And so even in, you know, the small gestures and the fuck when, you know, my grandmother doesn't hug me, she sniffs uh, my cheek as a gesture of affection. And then there's very large things like it's very important to worship your ancestor and respect your ancestors in my family. So I think it's a there's a kind of always an awareness of like things can be different. And I think that's been very useful, I mean, for navigating the world per se, but also useful in the context of world building where I can feel less encumbered by assumptions because I'm like, oh, well, different places have a totally different calendar because I know at least two personally. So I don't make the assumption that the calendar I know is the only one, right? Absolutely. And I I worked with somebody once, a lovely gentleman, very, very talented, very, very smart, autistic engineer. And he was one who said, by the way, I may have problems making eye contact with you. It's really hard for me. So if you add a little bit of neurodivergence in there too, along with any of those cultures, that makes it even extra tricky, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, neurodivergence gender as well plays a part and i mean there's all sorts of considerations right the other thing is i think i've been very you know there's a number of themes that come that i come back to in the course of my writing that i've been very interested in for instance some of the things that i'm interested in are liminal spaces and what it means to occupy a space between two or three different cultures for obvious reasons right and places where People are a little bit different, a little bit outside from mainstream culture and what that means and, you know, how much of a given culture you seek to preserve, what does diaspora mean and how do different diasporas form themselves, which keep cropping up even though I don't make any conscious effort to include them in my writing. You have done some alternative history there, correct? Um, a little, yeah. I wrote the Suya series, which is um, basically um, an alternate history series about what would happen if we had galactic empires that were inspired by a Confucian model rather than a descended from the Roman Empire model. Mm-hmm. Um, so they are of... I started with Chinese because like Vietnamese was a little too scary. And then I thought, well, you know, if I don't write my own culture, who's going to for me? <laughs> so I moved to Vietnamese. And so there, there are those far-ranging space empires that are based on things I'm familiar with given a new coat of paint and then dealing with like issues of war and ancestral memory and ancestor worship and culture and tradition and duty except in space. Um, Aliette though, weren't your first books basically an Aztec empire? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, was, I wanted to write a kind of uh, fantasy, historical fantasy mystery, and too many Spanish courses is <laughs> 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 basically what happened. And I think, it, I mean, you know, I don't know. When I started, I was feeling very uncomfortable with the idea of writing anything that was based on my own cultures, because I was afraid that my family would just, like, you know, track me down and <laughs> yell at me. You know, my mom once gave me a lecture on my incorrect use of the word dialect. Wow. Like, wow. Okay, well, I am glad you don't remember Asian mothers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. It's funny. Now, I think, what is this? It's 2021, and they're finally starting to have discussions that saying even the term Aztec is something that was labeled on top of Omesimo American, that, that they didn't call yeah, themselves yeah. that. 
you know? No, 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 they, they didn't. Those those are things that don't really feel very qualified to talk about, right? Um, right especially since enough. it was a long time ago. Fair enough. You have also a theme. You use a lot of demons and angels and ghosts across all of your genres, and I love that. Where do you where do you feel? Are you, do you feel that these are common images across anything? The ghosts. Well, I think you know. <laughs> Catholic school does have influences there. And also, like in Vietnamese folklore, you have like spirits and demons. And so there's, it's not even a fascination with the supernatural because like they're just here, right? So they're kind of, I think we're like coming back to liminal spaces. I think also part of my fascination is like, how do you share space with other people who are completely different? And some of them may not be mortal. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. You have, I, I have a question because I read your novella, The Tea Master and the Detective. Does this mean that you are a tea connoisseur? Oh, God, yes. Don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, by all means. I mean, tea has crept into every world, even though we had imported, you know, England, we're fairly certain, did horrible things to India, and it was all because of tea. So tea is important in the universe. Mm. Well, I mean, I've I've always grown up drinking tea, right? The the very the very first thing that I started drinking when you know I was no longer a child and drinking you know milk, chocolate, and whatever it is that I was drinking before then was gunpowder tea, uh, which my mum would buy in bulk uh, from the the local Asian supermarkets. And tea has just become part of. I mean, you know, tea is something that brings me great joy, but it's also become part of the writing ritual, right? So it's um. Okay, before a writing session, I am going to pick my tea. I am going to set out like the tea boat, the teapot, uh, the pitcher and the cup. And, and I have like, you know, pretty pictures and pretty tea boats and lots of pretty things that go with it. So there's a kind of, it's not, I mean, it's a very soothing ritual, but also it's part of the, I am putting myself in the writing mindset now. We are doing the thing, right? So I am boiling the water. We are pouring the water, brewing the tea. Okay, we're ready now. Um, I, and I love that. I, you're, the, you're the first person that's really talked about having a ritual to writing. And I'd love to dig into this a little bit deeper. You clear your space. Everybody says, make a space and make the time and sit down and do it. But the ritual aspect of it, that's fascinating. Yeah. Well, the thing is, I mean, I don't... So... I have a flat. There's like three of us in this flat, me and two kids. And, and it can be quite tricky to just, you know, basically my writing zone is the dining room table. So I figured that I was going to need something to like mark the space. So I got the tea. I also got some pencil pots, right? Just to have all my, all my pens that I write with and specific notebooks. So I basically like, put the space together with the same components. It's not necessarily always in the same layout. It's like, okay, there's tea, I have pens, I have paper, my laptop's here, and now we are doing the the writing. And there's this kind of, I think, because it, I don't per se have a dedicated space, right? So I have to make the space in my brain. Well, you have to dedicate your space in a slightly ritualistic way, and that makes yeah. perfect sense. So you say pens and paper and a laptop. I'm intrigued. Uh, do you write more, write, scribe it and then transcribe it? Or tell us about your process. Um, so no, I don't. So I mean, so generally, any given thing is like about 50% research uh, and 50% first draft. And then, you know, everything else is like 
past 100% mark. And when I do research, what I will do is I will write things down uh, using, uh, I'm also a fountain pen aficionado and ink. Um, I have a very good Instagram, which features none of my books and lots of tea and lots of ink. It's basically like the worst promotional material ever, but it's kind of cool. Um, <laughs> so we can see that if anybody needs to bribe her, the way to her heart is a really beautifully turned pen. Much, yeah. See, now I want to see, see your Instagram because tea and pen sound fabulous to me. <laughs> it's Alia TV on Instagram. And I also like that you've been blunt about the, the writing and then there's the research and the writing is only 50% and then comes the editing. <laughs> yes. And then countless revisions and all of that. Right. But, um, but I think I kind of need enough of like a, a compost pile of things I've read about in order to actually have a plot and characters and things that don't keep circling back to always the same things, right? So I will like have a pile of books that look to be vaguely relevant to what I want to write about. So the latest pile of book that I had was, you know, piracy in the South China Sea because I was trying to write a space pirate book. Oh, cool. um, I'll read and make notes and I don't actually come back to the notes the act of making them just helps me keep things organized in my brain, right? I've found that generally what happens when I do need to like look up a specific detail or something is I will actually go back to the books rather than the notes. Oh. Um, so have you been studying uh, uh, Ching Shi then? Yep, definitely. <laughs> and I'm sorry out there if somebody said that I wrote her name wrong, but she was, I, I happen to be also an aficionado of pirates and especially female pirates. So she was always one of my favorite. That, that at the very end, she went into government and elected, yeah. well, you can hang a few of my officers because they're jerks and you need to pardon these people because they're very useful, but we shall form the Navy. And I thought that was brilliant. Yeah, no, I, I studied a bunch of like pirates. And so anyway, I wrote this kind of, it's kind of like a sapphic comedy of manners where one of them is a pirate queen and the other one is like, the engineer and they have to save the pirates so while dealing with their feelings which is more complicated than foreseen <laughs> yeah. um and so i ba i based the pirate queen partly on chingsi um and then and a little bit of uh, sounds like was it Anne bonnie and mary reed were the irish uh gals that um, you not i mean not really. I just wanted a specific relationship. I sort of went like, okay, I don't. I'm not very, very familiar with the Atlantic seaboard piracy, other than you know, black sails once. Right. <laughs> That's right. about the extent of what I did. I, I really, I kind of really wanted to write something that was specifically like South China Sea rather than uh, Atlantic seaboard, and I thought it was best to leave the Atlantic seaboard alone because, like, so much of my unconscious is like, you know, pirates of the Caribbean and probably a really, really bad version of the Atlantic seaboard, but like the, the South China's, you really operated on different principles. And so where was I? And then after I've done this, what I will do is I will start drafting and I keep the notebook by the laptop when I get stuck. Uh, and I found that actually, instead of staring at a blank page, what has helped me get the plot unstuck is uh, writing things down on a, on a piece of paper and just sort of like brainstorming in a different medium. Interesting. I, nobody else has mentioned this. This is a new idea for us. Expand a little bit. How, tell me about how you've been stuck and what you did about it then. Well, for instance, the last problem I was dealing with was um, my main character needed to have... Um, so somebody's trying to kill her and she has to figure out how to deal 
with somebody who's trying to kill her. And my initial plot summary had, well, she goes and confronts the person who's trying to kill her and threatens her into backing away, right? And at that point, I got stuck. And so generally, when it's stuck, it's one of two things. It's like, you know, I, need, I really need to put my butt in the chair and write stuff. Or my subconscious has been knocking at the door and going like, Elliot, something's really, really wrong with that plan. Really, really wrong, trust me. And obviously, it would be easy if I knew which would do it, right? Yeah. Um, I, you know, I grabbed the friendly ear and I said, look, I need to like say something. And the friendly ear was like, okay, yeah. Um, well, it doesn't really, I mean, I can see why it would make sense, but it doesn't make sense, seem to make a lot of sense for the character. I was like, yeah, fair. So what would the character want, actually? Okay, so stopping the poisonings and she's not confrontational so she doesn't actually want to like show up and deal with the murderer and also she is not the blackmail she's a fairly upright and upstanding person so she's not going to do the blackmailing thing or the threatening thing okay but she does need to survive so i was like can she denounce the murderer to the police and i was like no she can't because it's been established throughout the novel so far that the police is corrupt so they're not going to do anything I mean, they're probably going to arrest her, which is not going to help anything. And then I thought, wait, the reason she is getting targeted is because the murderer wants to prevent the specific thing from passing. And if that thing does come to pass, actually, the murderer is going to be in a much less powerful position. So actually, she needs to make sure that the thing she wants to do, she needs to do happens. And so she needs protection. I love the so politics of murder there. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, in all fairness, you know, her, her lover, who is the kind of person who will totally blackmail her, threaten his girl, like, well, just blackmail her. <laughs> oh, she's well. like, no, we're not doing the blackmail. <laughs> so, you know, it's like murder lover with like <laughs> okay. paladin of justice engineer. <laughs> we're not doing blackmail. <laughs> no, we're not doing poisoning. <laughs> oh, come on, not even a little one. <laughs> not just a little poisoning. <laughs> you have a writer's group. You, you are part of Written in Blood, correct? Um, I was, I was. Um, okay. a, I mean, I couldn't keep up with the commitments. Ah. So, I was say, do, you have, do you use beta readers then, or do you just bounce ideas off everybody who happens to be near you? I mostly bounce ideas off other writers currently, and who are also friends, right? And who also tend to be my beta readers. And generally, so generally for short stories, I will mostly like have maybe one or two beta readers because I mostly need a does this make sense kind of thing. And for a novel, I'm going to want three or four people just so I can compare notes because a novel is like more complicated, I think, and the variety of things to be fixed and to be dealt with is stronger. Right. And currently, I'm trying, I'm trialing a thing for the first time, which is I couldn't. It's been really hard motivating myself for some weird reason. I don't know. There's a pandemic going on, apparently. A allegedly, um, yes. Allegedly, right? And for some reason, it's like had an effect on motivation. I don't know why. Um, and so what I'm trialing is um, um, an alpha reader, right? So I have a friend to whom I'm sending my chapters as I finish them. And the friend is sending me that chapters in exchange. I mean, in exchange, as they finish them too. And so we basically squeeze at each other's chapters and keep each try to keep each other going. <laughs> That's that's an excellent way of encouraging anybody that can read it and and look at it for you. So and it's a bit terrifying because I'm not used to like to sharing. I feel like I'm jinxing the process, right? I'm like, well, now this draft is never going to get completed because I shared bits of it, right? Uh, but actually, I do need the kind of like external validation of somebody going like, oh my god, this bit was so great, right? <laughs> do you do you plot, do you plot in advance, Elliot? 
I do plot in advance, yes. I also extensively revised the plot, right? So oh, yeah. the plot I had for this thing included the she goes and confront the murderer and things happen. I'm currently in the process of going like, so this doesn't happen. This doesn't happen. This does not happen. <laughs> and let's see. Where does that leave us now? I think I first met you on Twitter, of all places, and followed you. And you were you seem to be having a little bit of a, a glum day. Of, is anybody out there? Is anybody reading? And, and I asked you, what should I read of yours? And you sent me to House of Shattered Wings. And I immediately went out, bought it, and read it, and really, really loved it. And I yeah, like that you. it was the, the devastated, po almost post-apocalyptic, gothic Paris. And nobody had ever done that of really sort of saying, all right, it's a post-apocalyptic, but supernatural. And uh, you use places that everybody knows and has a vision of immediately. I think, did you write it before or after um, Notre Dame caught fire? <laughs> before, long before, like years before. <laughs> yeah. So when Notre Dame burned and everybody was like sending me pictures and I was like, actually, I mean, it's it's a little sad, right? I I kind of liked the bit where it was fiction. <laughs> <laughs> well, you think you're writing fiction, but clearly you're some sort of, you know, crystal ball of the future, you and Charlie Strauss, which yeah. is worrisome. I kind of hope, you know, none of the other places I blew up are going to blow up because like, you know, I, I did like extensively destroy the rest of Paris and the rest yeah. of the novels. So. Please, please don't. We like, we like Paris. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I like Paris too. You know, I happen to live in it. So that'd be helpful. Yeah, I, I, there, there used to be this grand sandstone rock arch leaping from a cliff out into the sea near, near Newcastle where I used to live. Um, and obviously, you know, I destroyed that in a book because, you know, you would, wouldn't you? Um, and, and a year later, whole thing fell down. Oh, Chaz. Oh, Chaz. <laughs> so what we're, what we're saying is we should really be careful about what we do with words. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. What are you working on right now? What's your, uh, if you can talk about it, where, where are you going in your mind palace right now? Um, so I just finished a short story, a science fantasy sh uh, short story that's basically about monasteries and the end of the world. And I'm working on a book that I've been working on for a while, which is a kind of um, um, space revenge kind of book. And about halfway through it, and, you know, the terrible middles stage of this where I'm like, I don't understand why I'm feeling so down. Oh, wait, isn't it the same every book? It is the same every book, right? <laughs> What do you do when you hit that magic block and the ritual isn't working and you like, okay, I need to do the scene where I murder this character that I like very much. I just don't seem to want to write it. How do you kind of kick yourself over those humps? Uh, bribery. <laughs> <laughs> so chocolate's great. So what I've decided for this one is that every 15,000 words, I get some tea. Like, As in get some tea, walk to the kitchen and buy it, or get some tea. There's a new thing I've always wanted to try. I shall order it yeah, to help no, pick it up. The, the second one. The uh, second excellent. One. <laughs> I figured, you know, it's fairly cheap. <laughs> 15,000 yes. words. Like yesterday when I finished my short story, I basically went like, okay, fine. Where are the M&Ms in the kitchen? <laughs> <laughs> it's time. <laughs> Sometimes... I'm just stuck, as with that previous plot point, because my brain is going like, this makes no sense, right? So part of it is also trying to work out if it's this or that, right? Which is generally, if it's been a few days and even sitting down in front of the computer hasn't seemed to help, I just usually go see a friend and go like, hey, can I run something past you, right? 
that and yeah that's about uh that's about the extent of it i'm on pacemaker where i try to like keep a a kind of running tally of how much i've written i mean lately lately it's been a bit draining for like personal reasons so i haven't been on but um when i'm drafting it's kind of really nice to have that immediate reward of like the word count happened and and then otherwise it's uh, something uh, mario Bennett kowal um told me which is try to write three sentences um because that's easy right you can write three sentences uh and then generally by the time that i've written three sentences i can write three other sentences right but but the obligation the the goal is something imminently achievable that i can't beat myself over the head for failing right it's like i will open the manuscript and i will write three sentences that's like super easy so it's like you know tricking my brain into starting that's brilliant that's a really good idea it's a little bit like uh, Chess and I jumped onto a hundred words. If I can just write a hundred words, then you usually end up writing more than a hundred words. But a hundred yeah, yeah. is is actually yeah. not that much, and it's a gentle yeah. way to make yourself go. Yeah, exactly. And I'm I'm very much a fan of trying to like. Part of the reason I like fail NaNoWriMo every year is that I cannot write a thousand six hundred words to save my life every day. Right? That's too much. Right? But. If, if we're asking just for a habit and also, you know, I'm, I'm a parent, I have young kids, you know, we are going to have the, as we had this weekend, the ear and throat infection episode where I don't sleep for the entire night, which is fair. I signed up for it, right? But it does make it, you know, harder to sustain any kind of rhythm like this. So I'm like, you know, the goal has to be small enough that even on a bad day, I can actually open the manuscript and achieve the goal. So... And, and part, I mean, it's been really hard because, you know, I've been raised to like be an overachiever. So I'm like, okay, yeah, no, we're doing something small, small. <laughs> Our friend Cliff Winnig was one of his blockers. We were, I was discussing a plot blocker and Madeline was discussing a plot blocker and he was discussing two adorable, well, three adorable children blockers. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, I mean, my eldest is responsible for the, Apparently, most effective piece of scary body horror that I came up with in House of Sundering Flames, the third book in like the Dominion of the Fallen trilogy. I asked him what he wanted in the book, and he said puzzle birds, like jigsaw birds. Oh, and I was okay. like, okay, so things are made of birds. Okay, well, bodies are made of birds. Okay, that gets a bit creepier. <laughs> well. Everything is allowed to get you, and everything is birds. <laughs> so I'm not too sure that's what he actually had in mind, but everybody has told me, like, they are the creepiest thing. And I'm like, well, credit goes to my little assistant. They are. I mean, it's like imagining that that, that man in a whole suit jacket and hat low over his eyes could explode into snakes at any minute, and that's a little terrifying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Composite one can always rely on one children apparently for that. I am looking forward to seeing of you know what else they can come up with. What I love about kids is because they do not think the way we do yet. You know, they're still they're still learning to think um the way you know we want them to and, and they're they've got their own ideas and I just love that. What advice would you give a new starting out writer of any age to say they want to write um, say they want to write fantasy and science fiction. What advice would you give them? Best best lesson you've learned? Uh, best lesson I've learned. Um, you have to understand why there are rules so you can break them. Uh. 
<laughs> I mean, so you can, ju- sorry, so you can judge the cost of breaking them and whether that's worth it or not. Ah, oh, that's even better. Yeah. <laughs> we, we say that when I'm coaching sports, here is the rule and the play and the technique. Now, learn these so that you can go break them at your convenience, but understand why there's a rule. Yep, pretty much. That's beautiful. Do you have anything coming out soon that we can all look forward to or pre-order? Um, not at the moment, no. Um, I have something that came out uh, in February 2021, which is uh, Fireheart Targa, which is a romantic fantasy with princesses, fire elementals, and colonial pre-colonial politics uh, set in a sort of reimagined version of ancient Vietnam before the French showed up. And it's a novella, so it's really short. You can read it in one sitting, and it's great. Um, well, we it's also well. I, I do feel like I have to mention that as a tri- as trigger warnings, it does have abuse and a non-explicit rape attempt. What's it thank called? Fireheart, Fireheart Tiger. Fireheart Tiger. Thank you. Well, I will put links to uh, your books, especially in this new novella, on our website, which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. You can also find us on Facebook or Twitter. Aliette, this has been really great having you with us tonight. Thank you so much for taking the time from Paris. Well, thank you so much for putting this together. And thank you for the chat, which was lovely. Oh, we are so delighted. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is by Deirdre Schween, and our sound engineer and backup web spider is David Welsh. Our intro music is Pretty Maid Milking a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with the Morning Person, both by Michael Engberg. You can hear more from Michael Engberg on ManyHatsMusic.com. Our podcast sponsor is Jackal Designs, and today, everyone who brings you delicious tea. And hey, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.